Blog Talk Radio. Humanity, human being, human love, on a spiritual tip, so vast, so great, the African embrace, live beyond. Love beyond your skin to where you belong. Oh, you 
pop up town, we can get the beat pound. Look at the buzz. Look at the head. Look at the good. Original one. Look at the buzz. Look at the buzz. Look at the buzz. Look at the And bebop and hip hop that we don't stop. You see, it started a long time ago and it wasn't a show. We gave birth to a style like a precocious child, feeling the passion for life, erasing away all the strife. We telling our tales with verbal mail, putting honey on the blade, creating language to persuade. Share who we've always been. Always a blessing, never a sin. We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop and we don't stop. Since our mother gave birth to everyone on earth. So we echo her call. And always walk tall. Cause we're hip to the world, so we create black pearls. Everyone can wear. Everyone can share. We can't live in despair. So we shine everywhere. On and on. On and on. On and on. We welcome you to Africa on the Move. As your host, Brother Africa, it's always an honor and a privilege to come to your homes this evening when we speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. Today is the third day of October, 2021, and our theme tonight is... Feed the wall machine by any means necessary. We will discuss that theme and many other topics and issues that are affecting our communities and our nations and the world. So we invite you to come in and join us by dialing in at 323-679-0841. Like always, we're in the seat. We're going to take the heat. As we define it, we're going to stand behind it. We want you to do the same, so come and join us. Right now, like always, you know the way we get started with our party is to introduce to you our political panelists and analysts for today's program. At this time, we'll bring in Brother Haki, and we would like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Brother Haki, welcome. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. <clears throat> My name is Haki Gamafi Mishoki. Currently, I'm with African Awareness, and of course, Brother Africa, you know. My thing is all about institution building. Now, one of the things, you know, I find, you know, um, particularly problematic is the relationship between the police and, and our youth. Uh, often, these encounters uh, result in very, you know, tragic circumstances in which the youth is, uh, you know, vehemently uh, abused. And this kind of abuse is, is not only systematic, but is actually endorsed uh, by the, uh, by the uh, police themselves, police agencies themselves. So I, there was a particular case in, in the South London of a young of a youth, and uh, in terms of the kind of um, treatment that he received was on, on many, many levels very, very problematic. 
<coughs> and uh, it got me thinking about in terms of the psychological aspects in terms of what it is to be a police and why this whole question in terms of eliminating police abuse and brutality is so difficult to achieve. Also, we don't think about the psychological dimensions uh, along with the political dimensions in terms of the problem that we're confronted with when we talk about police abuse. But hopefully, you know, after reading this piece, people will be very clear on terms of the, the between the police abuse and the psychological dimensions that exist and in terms of uh, motivated, uh, cops' motivating behavior. Now, check this out, Brother Africa. Now, the origin of police aggression must be viewed in the context of psychohistorical developments in which the need to safeguard the state's interest mandated the elevation of institutions specifically to protect state's interests by maintaining social control. In the case of Benjamin Alajibe, a 13-year-old uh, African youth of British birth, connotations of social control takes on a different dimension. Confronted by police in South London for allegedly carrying a knife while constrained and searched for a knife none was found on his person or his school backpack. Despite not finding anything to incriminate the youth, he was violently placed in a police van. At some point during the confrontation, the youth attained a black eye indicative of some manner of force. The fact that the conclusion of the encounter did not result in the youth being free to resume his day suggests social control was not within itself sufficient to satisfy these police. Ironically, when it comes to confrontations between police and young people of color, the outcome often is tragic. Police are often not content to accept the potential for crime has been abrogated by clearing a suspect. They seek to go a step further by humiliating or even killing individuals they perceive as transgressors. Raises the question of the psychological dimensions about police values and training that fit prominently shaping what constitutes a legitimate transgressor from an individual who was unfairly stopped or subsequently free to pursue the remainder of their day. Of their day. Police assessment of potential detainers usually entail three elements, according to Jesse Hoff, a research on police matters. They are, one, assessment of threat to the police, secondly, detainees' physical size, and thirdly, suspects' reaction to police. Now, the subjectivity of these elements endangers the well-being and even the lives of African people when confronted by police. African community and police relationships are indeed com complicated by a historical institution that preceded the police called overseers, was specifically designed to ensure the subjugation of African people. This function is reinforced by a social political system that characterized Africans as, as criminally, criminally prone, even though criminal institutions sanctioned by the state commit all the crime. The inclination to view Africans as criminals tends to be pervasive among authoritarian personality types. These individuals tend to give great relevance to the political system despite its many systematic flaws and inequalities it engenders. As a matter of policy, police agencies tend to recruit heavily from the military. The authoritarian disposition and deference to power among many ex-military is well documented, and no doubt many make, many, excuse me, many make fine candidates as police because they are un, they are willing to carry out orders without asking questions. Problems arise when these authoritarian mindset has to contend with the requirements of the job as police. Psychologists in the police quarterly have reported on the difficulties between an authoritarian mindset and boredom, which facilitates sadistic behavior. The report laid out the correlation of the authoritarian mindset and the propensity for boredom. It further, elab <coughs> it further elaborated, increases in boredom, elevated statistic, sadistic thinking, and the propensity to shoot others for the relief of that boredom. 
Ironically, correlations of shooting others, the report shows, have greater relevance than being rich, a rock star, or partaking in great sex. The unconscious desire to shoot and its correlation with authoritarian impulses was published in a subsequent article in which a study was conducted to assess the unconscious motivations to shoot at the slightest opportunity availed itself. This study, using a training simulator, invited 23 police agencies from three different states to attend. The study informed the police randomly they were dispatched to investigate a trespass in progress, and apparently and supposedly the suspect reported to have had a gun. Police then were randomly told to carry their weapons in one of three ways. One, in the aiming position. Secondly, holding a weapon at the sternum level. And lastly, holding a weapon at a, at a naval level or lower level. At the scene, suspects will pull out either a cell phone or, or a gun from their pocket. In the cell phone scenario, majority of police in the aiming high position fired their weapons, while 30% holding low-level position discharged their weapons. With respect to the gun scenario, little difference in response regarding to, we- regarding to the weapon position. This unconscious bias does not only manifest itself when police interact with adults, but children as well, resulting in the loss of life at a very early age. If this bias manifests itself as police assaults, as reprehensive as it is, at least youth will be allowed to see the next day. Leaders continue to pontificate the solution to last administrative remedies to curb police overreach and abuses. But when enacted, has been a little use in changing the behavior of police agencies. In fact, the Committee on Accreditation for Law Enforcement Agencies has existed for over 42 years. The agency mandate is to protect youth from the arbitrary police practices that routinely end in civilian abuse or deaths. The organization by its own mission has failed. Two examples. First, Adam Toledo, 13-year-old Latin youth, was killed in Chicago, Florida in 2021, allegedly in possession of a weapon threatening police, which is disputed by the video itself. Secondly, Makia Bryant, 16, in Columbus, Ohio, was killed during a domestic incident in which families were in dispute. Officer Nick Reardon fired his weapon, alleging the youth had something in her hands while attacking others. The official narrative differed greatly from the observers at the scene. Ironically, the Committee on Law Enforcement Accreditation oversees 15 to 1,800 police agencies in the U.S. Its accreditation requirements specifically requires these police agencies to apply the juvenile standard when dealing with children. Incredibly, Columbus, Ohio police was accredited seven times before Makia Bryan was killed by police in April of 2021. Would this sound incredulous? Chicago, Illinois Police Department was accredited four years before Adam Toledo was killed by police in March 2021. If accreditation every four years does not serve as an impediment to police misconduct, the notion of an administrative measure to curb police misconduct is sadly misplaced, particularly when police agencies themselves support the warrior-like mindset among the police. Apparently, the ages of children inflicted by police transgressions is of no concern. Police pepper spray a nine-year-old African female in the Rochester, New York. In Baton Rouge, Louisiana, a 13-year-old African boy is choked by the police. A 10-year-old Latin child boy is manhandled by police and thrown to the ground in New Mexico. Oddly enough, police work is categorized as dangerous. The reality is it is not. According to the FBI Uniform Crime Report, violent crimes account for less than 1% of all service calls to police. According to Professor Matthew Bostrom of the University of Oxford, he says 99% of police work is boredom. He estimates between 46 to 81% of police work is unassigned time or the amount of time police drive around waiting for a call. 
Jerry Ratcliffe, also a professor, goes a step further, explaining most police calls have nothing to do with crime. Most calls consist of disorderly crowds, domestic disputes, traffic accidents, and unfounded calls or incidents that result themselves prior to police arrival. In fact, 25 of the most dangerous jobs put police at number 22 behind delivery drivers at number 7 and, and crossing guards at number 12. The bottom line is ending police abuse will only end with capitalism's demise. This is self-evident when we understand 19 countries manage their police in a way the killings by police are much less, and the dignity of police expressed toward the citizens is palpable. Why can't America do the same? And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses, and we'd like to bring him in. So welcome to Africa on the Move, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. I, 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 I believe that women hold up half the sky, and I'm pro-ERA. ERA, yes, Equal Rights Amendment. And um, finally, the most important thing is that we unite the many to defeat the lives of the few. And uh, ideologically, we will be in the proper position to make the right decisions. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Um, Brother Africa, this is Africa on the Move. We're going to go to a revolutionary break, and when we come back, we're going to have our discussion on what's going on in your world and the community. And we invite you to call in and share with us what's going on in your world and the community. That dial at 323-679-0841. Don't you go nowhere. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. Must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, 
line across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth, Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves, Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries and see the blood in the red clay, the clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. Light is clear. Oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah, and made it through my journey. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. 
They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. Needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. We welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. Before we took our revolutionary break, we were introducing our panelists and analysts for today's program. And we'd like to add to that list by right now welcoming Brother Anthony to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Anthony, to Africa on the Moon. And revolutionary greetings uh, to the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Okay, fine, Brother Anthony. We're also going to add right now to this list of panelists and Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you so much, Brother Africa. Good evening to all our listeners and my fellow panelists. Thank you so much. Today is August 3rd, and it's a wonderful day, and thank you for allowing me to participate in this evening's forum. 
All right. You listen to Africa on the Moon. Before we go to our theme today, which is Feed the Wall Machine by Any Means Necessary. Right now, we're going to discuss what's going on in our world and the community. And to start us off with this, we're going to go to Brother Haki and ask him a million-dollar question, Brother Haki. What's going on in your world and the community? Well, Brother Africa, uh, a tremendous amount of um, consternation is going on in my world. Uh, one of the things, when we talk about the, uh, the role of the so-called debt ceiling that's in discussion now, uh, often there's a hidden history in which people are not privy to. So I thought it was, it, was, it was relevant that I at least bring up some of the hidden history around it with respect to the question of debt ceiling. Because these people actually make want you to think that, in fact, this kind of discussion is somehow productive. And in reality, what they're seeking to do is to obfuscate the reality in terms of the kind of uh, systematic uh, poverty that's uh, perpetrated, you know, by individuals in positions of power. And so, therefore, you know, by phase, by talking about the death ceiling in a way in which, you know, it excludes, you know, certain facts, people come to the realization or conclusion that somehow that the, that the discussion on death ceiling is, in fact, in our interest. But, in fact, anything can be further from the truth. So, in any event, Brother Africa, check this out. Now, looking at the death ceiling has manifested itself over 69, years, 69 times over the last six years. Is there any indication of the best way to go forward? The quintessential question has to be, why hasn't the political and financial institutions not learned anything along the way? Ironically, they have learned, but what they have learned is the deceptiveness of the economy and the sight of a hand that ensures the availability of capital in the hands of the wealthy elite whose interest does not concern itself with the plight of the real economy. So what are the implications of capitalism? First, you must understand the Federal Reserve is privately owned. Its owners, like any good capitalist, seek to maximize profits by whatever means necessary. In 1913, when the Federal Reserve came into existence, wealthy architects of the plan realized investing in government was big business, and the profits derived from such a relationship would be astronomical. Along with the wealth came great power and status. Tasked with ensuring an adequate amount of money in circulation to satisfy both the world economy and the U.S. economy, posed challenges relating to monetary policy and inflation. This balancing act was difficult to maintain given the prevalence of war and the profit-seeking inclination of wealthy overlords of the Federal Reserve who saw opportunities to enhance their bottom line. By manipulating the amount of money in circulation and showing rising interest rates, which directly impacted countries' economies, including the U.S., these undesired impacts of Federal Reserve policies did not go unnoticed by U.S. capitalist elites. During the Camp David Summit in 1971, Nixon and his cabinet, along with the leading CEO, CEOs, decided to abandon the gold standard, which fundamentally affected the prices of all products, commodities, and services in the world. By eliminating the gold standard, Nixon achieved two milestones. First, he weakened the Federal Reserve's policy of unilaterally setting the terms of business activities of the world, thus limiting the profitability of the owners of the Federal Reserve. Secondly, he elevated fiat currency, a currency which has no intrinsic value, uh, to ensure the function of the global economy would be determined by U.S. financial institutions in conjunction with the Federal Reserve. In addition, Nixon's policy increased accessibility to capital for the capitalist class as opposed to a relatively small group of capitalists. With this new economic arrangement emerged fractional banking in a more potent form. This banking practice recognized debt would play a more decisive role in wealth accumulation for the wealthy. This feat would be achieved by creating money on computers then using this imaginary money to make loans to the wealthy. Typically, it would work like this. 
The $25 billion of bonds purchased by the Federal Reserve from the Treasury Department weekly will go on the Federal Reserve books, but the $25 billion ends up financing loans totaling more than $100 billion. This creation of money benefits the capitalist class because the availability of capital is specifically designed to benefit capitalists. But the impact of the real economy, we talked about employment, education, health care, et cetera, are negatively affected. Rising interest rates, inflation, which is a visible tax which seeks to the government uses to seek to recoup uh, its losses because of the loopholes to the wealthy, unemployment, the consumer price index, which measures the cost of living, which excludes, by the way, which excludes the housing cost, because if you include the housing cost on the CPI, then they give you a more better estimate in terms of level of poverty that exists in America. Now, these economic variables increase poverty, but it has never addressed in over 69 years of debt ceiling discussions. At some point, the people have to recognize the nature of the dual economy and why some people prosper and the multitude concerns are never taken into consideration. Now, discussion around, discussions around debt ceiling makes for good public relations for little else. The entire economy is based on debt, and without debt, the Ponzi scheme known as capitalism could not continue. This is evident when we take into consideration the Obama stimulus package in 2008 was credited with preventing a deeper recession, or the $2.2 trillion CARES Act passed by Congress to counter the economic fallout of COVID-19. Both policies entail the creation of debt. So why would discussions of debt ceiling insinuate debt is unprecedented or to be avoided? The answer lies in policies that benefit the capitalist but undermines the economy. In the case of economic sanctions, $1 billion results annually in the U.S., according to the Institute of International Economics, over $19 billion lost in export earnings a year. Consequently, 12% of GDP from 12.22% just two years ago in 2018, or about $3.1 trillion are being lost. The xenophobic behind the sanctions are self-evident, but capitalist desire to gain at the expense of the real economy is equally prescient. Relocation of American factories and jobs abroad have increased earnings for the wealthy in terms of investments upward 18% of GDP. The only problem is these captured economic gains do not benefit the country as in, in its entirety. Corporate tax rates as a share of government revenues have declined precipitously since 1932, and this despite the stock market crash in 1929, where similar policies were enacted. Currently, corporate tax contributions to the government is 1%, down from 7% just a year ago in 2020, according to Pete Peterson Foundation. Debt levels in the U.S. are aggravated by the fact corporations dodge tax responsibilities on average $160 billion a year by engaging in criminal debt, hiding a minimum of $2.4 trillion in offshore accounts, averages about $700 billion of taxes owed to the country. When Federal Reserve Chairperson Jerome Powell talks about raising, raising, raising the debt ceiling to achieve economic recovery, I cannot help but become perplexed at such statements. This is the same person that has been weakening the bank regulations ensuring another banking crisis like 2008 where banking and corporate criminals crippled the economy. However, Chairman Powell policies are minuscule compared to the changes in the economic world landscape. China no longer needs dollars for its economy to grow. Russia has plans to liquidate all dollar holdings in its wealth fund, which means U.S. sanctions will, have, will be useless. All this means the unearned income, income to, unearned income, or income derived from not doing anything, uh, or income derived simply from the best investments, will be negatively impacted, and the U.S. economy will in, would ensure the U.S. economy crippled, and, and the amount of debt actually uh, increases. 
So when Chairman Powell talks about economic recovery, he understands it's all propaganda, a requirement of the job that com- that competing economic powers like China and Russia ensures in a multipolar world it can never be business as usual. Years that will continue to rise because capitalist fixation on profit does not concern itself with the dismal state of the economy or debt that benefits oligarchs exclusively. Debt in the U.S. is circulated has been never been defined as debt providing the wealthy prosper from such policies. Legitimate debt only exists as it pertains to poor people according to wealth. Policies that benefit poor people, like stimulus packages, are perceived as debt because the recipients of the support are an unproductive lot, undeserving of financial support. In the case of the wealthy, capital gains tax cuts, or the true true tax on assets, or corporate tax cuts, carry interest, or compensating wealthy people beyond the the actual earning, marginal tax rates, which increase tax brackets, which ensure that certain deductibles are are for, for the wealthy and not for others, Contributes to a bunch of deficits that are that are, def- that are never defined as debt because they b- benefit the wealthy specifically. These policies and similar ones under successive presidential administrations have validated such policies, enriching wealthy wealth and showing a debt crisis in the first place. Trump tax cuts alone added eight trillion dollars to national debt, and very few politicians voiced any concern at all. The reality is the debt ceiling debate is theater, formed to convince the public political elites are concerned about their interests. The bottom line is the debt ceiling debate is really about facilitating the maximizing insecurity among the people to enhance social control, nothing more. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next we'll go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community, Brother Anthony? Okay, uh, the leader of the coup in Guinea uh, assumed the pre- uh, the presidency of the Guinea Republic, and uh, the significance of this fact is that his wife, in addition to being a European, is also uh, an agent of the French military according to information I read, uh, uh, you know, about the uh, the latest development in the coup d'etat that took place in Guinea recently. And the significance of that is that the, is that the Europeans and the U.S. are trying to gain, uh, you know, control of the resources of Africa by any means necessary, including coup d'etat uh, and uh, indirect control of the military and economic uh, resources of Africa. And, uh, you know, and uh, so uh, the battle uh, for control of Africa is intensifying. And I'll close okay. with that. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. Um, uh, yesterday, I missed another demonstration, uh, a very important demonstration on pro-choice, uh, women's productive rights, and et cetera. It was... Uh, 
a very uh, good turnout. I understand it is across the country, and uh, and uh, it's definitely worth mentioning. Uh, also, the D.C. Metropolitan Coalition in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution still demanding a halt to U.S. economic war against Cuba, an end to travel restrictions, get U.S. out of Guantanamo, stop U.S. regime change programs against Cuba, and take Cuba off the list of state-sponsoring terrorism. Anybody who's revolutionary and who claims to be a revolutionary should understand that Cuba is the litmus test of revolutionaries. And um, anyway, um, especially here in the U.S. And so I just think, you know, it's been an interesting week. Uh, the, the Congress is, is um, Democrats, uh, and fighting over the the budget, et cetera, and that's I guess that's worth mentioning. Other than that, it's it's just been an interesting week. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moser, and we now will go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, well, of course, uh, it was yesterday's march. Uh, it's such an important thing because as of Monday, the Supreme Court will uh, hear its first in-person oral argument since the corona pandemic forced the proceedings to go virtual 19 months ago. Uh, The nine justices will consider, you know, very pivotal cases that uh, are going to review abortion rights, religion, and, and gun control. And at the same time, this is going on, Brother Africa, we've seen in the last few weeks countries like Chile, and uh, I I don't want to say the wrong name. There's a small country that's surrounded by Italy. It's a largely Catholic country. They now pass legislation supporting abortion rights. (coughs) Uruguay has uh, legislation supporting abortion rights. Why here? We are ignoring the rights of women, and we continue not to care for our children. And Congress is busy trying to take away the $400-plus billion that uh, President Biden requested to uh, extend uh, kindergarten and education for our youth as well as the care of our elderly. So uh, this is a, a critical time. In, in in our history, and uh, we hope that this court will be able to rise above its its shortcomings, and uh, that the court will uh, not tilt sharply conservative after what former President Trump did with his appointment of the three justices. Uh, I mean, I I don't know what to expect. Uh, it declined to hear the the case uh, or Texas abortion law, uh, as you know, last month. So we're hoping the the, the Supreme Court's new terms uh, what, that starts this week uh, will 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 rise above its 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 own interests and actually conserve and protect existing laws such as Roe versus Wade rather than reversing them. And we hope to see some serious 
action taken. Uh, It's questionable when you consider uh, the persons that were placed on the court, but we'll have to wait and see. And again, as uh, Brother Moses talked about, uh, Cuba, we see that Cuba has been uh, working hard to uh, serve uh, humanity in that they are providing vaccinations for persons in Asia as well as South America. So we realize, and I realize more than ever, that the war against Cuba is an international policy. It's really domestic policy. What happened, Brother Africa, was in 1959, many, many of the bourgeoisie during the Cuban Revolution came here to South Florida. They thought they were here for a short time because the Cold War was hot and heavy and they were sure Kennedy was going to bomb Cuba. Well, it didn't happen that way. Now we're 60 years inland, and the, and the U.S. is still providing millions of dollars, 50-plus million, $50 billion a, a year. I think, I'm sorry, I don't want to misquote but I know it's 5 I don't know if it's million or what. They provide these funds to support uh, the radio stations, uh, four radio stations and two TV stations that are aimed at Cuba and undermining the Cuba re- revolution. What it does for the Cubans in South Florida is it allows them to maintain a middle-class lifestyle. They don't have to worry about going to get their food stamps while they work their little low-paying job or going to get a uh, a Medicaid card because the U.S. government is propping them up as individuals. But that's really a domestic problem that we have here. It's not uh, the whole world sees that this embargo is outrageous and illegitimate. The world has changed. Cuba is our neighbor. It's time to lift the embargo. And it's time to stop letting one small group in South Florida dictate United States foreign policy. Because that's ridiculous. To me, that's domestic policy failing when we allow a few to dictate our foreign policy. Can't do it. And with the changing America and with the recent census data, and we see that there are 58 million Hispanics who have come to this country, and these people have begun coming since the 1980s, and this is their home, and they uh, are, we need to stand firm on our beliefs and policy and be united and not allow reactionaries to dictate uh, U.S. foreign policy. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. This is Africa on the Moon. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we'll begin our theme today, which is Feed the War Machine by Any Means Necessary. We invite you, the listening audience, to join in by dialing 323-679-0841. We'd like to hear your views, your perspectives, so we all can unite around this whole idea of unity of thought. Now, one thought for one action, and that action is the action to help liberate and unify our whole Africa, free Africa, free our people, and make a better humanity for all mankind. 
We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon.
we'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. Today is the third day of October 2021. We're in the seat, and we're going to take the heat. And we define it, we're going to stand behind it. Right now, our political panel analysts going to give their perspective on various articles that we are selected for today's theme, which is Feed the War Machine by Any Means Necessary. That's right, by any means necessary. That seems to be, and that historically has been, the policy of the U.S. government is to feed the war machine. Right now, the other ones who is getting paid, making money, are those who are a part of and is related to the war machine. They are getting paid while everybody else is getting played. So let's try to get a better understanding of what's going on as relates to feeding this war machine and how it may impact your community, your world, and particularly Mama Africa. So, panelists. Let's get started with our party as we discuss our theme today. Starting with you, Brother Haki, there's an interest article here to everyone. If you get a chance, please look this article up. And titles New York Times admit it sends stories to U.S. government for approval before publication. Came out on the 30th of June in 2019. And this article raised so many concerns and issues. Brother Haki, when you read this article, what is the pretext and the reason why the New York Times goes to the U.S. government and get its articles approved? How does that conflict with this whole question of freedom of press? And how does it have impact on what we hear, see, view, and policy making? Give me your perspective from this article, Brother Haki. Well, Brother Africa. In a, in a nutshell, what we're talking about is essentially what we're talking about is propaganda. Uh, one of the things that's very interesting interesting to note is that during the, the 80s, there was a serious change in terms of tenor uh, when it came to reporting, you know, in, 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 uh, upon uh, U.S. sources. Uh, historically, uh, the reporting had always been pretty, pretty balanced when it comes to in, injustices that exist in American society. But during the 80s, that changed, and they started recruiting a lot of reporters out of the Ivy League. Uh, and they recruited them specifically because they wanted a specific mindset in the, you know, writing those stories. In other words, the situation where historically where, 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 where reporters talk about injustice, that was switched to a, 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 a scenario which says that uh, the, problem wasn't, the, the, problem, the problem wasn't so much the problem of injustice in American society, the problem was the poor people themselves. They, in fact, was, was a problem. Now, if you think this is ironic, they even they even created a scenario with this saying, implying that the real victims in terms of what's happening in American society is, in fact, the rich people. So clearly, so you had this kind of perversion in terms of the, the, the news apparatus, but its sole purpose in terms of not only deceiving the masses of people, but certainly to form as much division as possible, uh, particularly as what pro- propaganda does. Uh, but one of the things that's very interesting also, brother, we have to know, brother Africa, when we talk about in terms of the editors in these boardrooms, one of the things you can understand that typically these editors are all white and they're all very conservative whites. And they all have pedigrees or backgrounds which specifically allude to the fact that they're very conservative. And this is no fluke. This is by design. In fact, there's only been one, uh, one African editor in, in, in the U.S., in the entire U.S. history 
in terms of a dominant uh, white newspaper. That was read, uh, Robert Maynard of uh, a paper out in Oakland, New York, um, Oakland, excuse me, Oakland, uh, California. Uh, so this notion in terms of, or this fear in terms of having African editors and musicians the power to determine content of the, of, of the news articles is something that those people in musicians of power simply won't allow to happen. And so consequently, so you get a, a, a large contention of people who are willing to play ball with, with the CIA and other uh, intelligence sources in terms of pumping out information what they know is not only disingenuous, but they know on the face of it is, 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 a, is, is, is a lie. Uh, one thing, you know, Brother Africa, I think was also interesting was the fact that uh, the question in terms of, um, this article raised the question in terms of, you know, you know who constitutes a journalist? Uh, normally, you know, journalism, you know, uh, is anyone who determines that they want to report on, on, on an issue. They become journalists. There was no hard and fast rule in terms of what constitutes a journalist. Well, with the advent of the, the Bush administration in terms of its focus in terms of this global war on terror, uh, one of the things they want to sort of sort of define, you know, uh, very clearly, is what constitutes a journalist, which which doesn't constitute a journalist. So the consequence of this notion in terms of what constitutes a journalist, those individuals who actually critique, those individuals who expose American um, savagery or American injustice, those individuals who point those things are typically not seen as journalists. They become the enemy. They become the other. But those individuals who actually acquiesce those individuals who pump out disinformation, who lie to the American public, are perceived as legitimate journalists. Played out over and over again in terms of the, in terms of news content in, this, in, this, in this society. So we should all understand this is no this is no mistake. Uh, also, you know, one of the things that uh, James, James Reason, Risen, uh, one of the things that's great about him, uh, despite the pressure that he received in terms of capitulating to give in to the demands of the powerful, he's been steadfast in terms of his, his, his desire. Uh, to actually put out that some real information in terms of actually get people to think, actually people to see critically what's going on in society. And as a, as a consequence, of course, he paid a price for that, but he's been very, very consistent. But what was amazing was when he pointed out the fact that 400 journalists consistently uh, carried out assignments for the CIA. Now, clearly, when you think about it in terms of the, the power of the CIA, and, and you, you've got to think about this power not only in the sense that we talk about the news media, but also in terms of Hollywood, in terms of the proliferate, or the, the amount of control and power the CIA operate, uh, uh, the amount of power control that the CIA actually have in terms of influencing content when it comes to, to Hollywood. So the CIA is a very, very powerful institution. And so when anytime you have news people, so-called journalists, actually working for, uh, working for, the, for the CIA to pump out disinformation, they're clearly there's something that we cannot take the news seriously, and this is important. And also, I may add, Brother Africa, as a side note, and I'm, I'm very cognizant of the fact that I also recognize that the role that uh, foreign agents play in terms of, you know, um, you know perpetrating, you know, disinformation online. So a lot of information we read comes from sources around the world, which is not legitimate. It's also propaganda. So the whole whole tent is to get people, you know, to, to, to buy into this propaganda. So not only do you have it in the United States, then you also have some people from around the world who actually impact a news reporter in the U.S. to put to put, put online news stories which are disingenuous or, or lie or disinformation. So we have this reality in terms of disinformation. So when we read um, these articles, it's important that not only we double-check, that we triple-check a lot of these sources because the bottom line is that you never know precisely where this disinformation is coming from, whether it's coming from the U.S. government or whether it's coming from foreign sources. But clearly, this, this notion in terms of the relationship between journalists and the CIA is something that uh, disqualify uh, the, me the media 
you know, from from any contention in terms of being taken seriously. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, I want you to respond to this article too, but before you respond, let me, let me just read a few sentences from this particular article. For a listening audience who may, have, who may have not had the opportunity to view this article, it says that the New York Times has publicly acknowledged that it sends some of its stories to the U.S. government for approval for, from national security officials before publication. This confirmed with veteran New York Times correspondents like Jane Rasmussen have said. The American newspaper of record regularly co- collaborates with the U.S. government, suppressing reporting that top officials don't want to be made. Brother Anthony, what lessons can we take from this article? That, um, that the New York Times and other corporate media are biased uh, towards the policies of the U.S. government. And since, uh, you know, people allow, rely upon uh, these media sources for their information, they may not be fully informed about the impact of U.S. policies on, uh, on, uh, uh, on their world and society. And uh, this is a dangerous situation in the sense, in the sense that, uh, you know, people think they're getting uh, information from independent sources, but re- but really they uh, uh, they're getting information that's subject to the biases of the rulers, the U.S. ruling class. Which is what the uh, what which is what the interests of the CIA and government agencies represent, and so they're getting uh, they're getting the view uh, a viewpoint that reflects the interests of the ruling uh, of the ruling bourgeoisie, and. Uh, and this is dangerous from the fact uh uh for the fact that a lot of people may not be making making informed decisions based upon information that they've obtained from these sources, which is why it's critically important in order to be fully informed that people get their information from a variety of sources, not just the U.S. corporate media, which is controlled by capitalist forces, which is something we've said before. But, uh, you know, this article uh, makes it clear that if information is run by the CIA and other government officials, to make sure that it's not objectionable to them, then that means that uh, uh, that puts into question all the information we get from sources such as the New York Times, Washington Post, etc. And uh, this is not uh, this is not uh, a healthy situation at all 
from making informed decisions about policies that may impact, you know, future generations. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Sister Eleanor, you know, U.S. has a policy of do as I say, but not as I do. Now, in this particular article, it raised a really interesting issue that you hear on the news all the time about how other countries are trying to destabilize and have cyber attacks against the U.S. But let me read this one point right here from this article. And since I know I'd like for you to also respond to this article as well as this point, because I find this irony in this, in this particular article, in this particular um, article. Dealing with this point, it says, on June 15, the Times reported that the U.S. government is escalating its cyber attacks on Russia power grid. According to the article, the Trump administration is using new authorities to deploy cyber, cyber, cyber tools more aggressively as a part of a larger digital cold war between Washington and Moscow. So, Eleanor, well, we heard this before. What is your take on this one, Sister Eleanor? What do you draw from this? Um, can you repeat your last few words for me, please, Brother Africa? You said the last few words. It says that yeah. um, let's go back. It said the Trump administration is using new authorities to deploy cyber tools more aggressively as a part of a large digital cold war between Washington and Moscow. It admits that U.S. are using cyber attacks to undermine the Russian infrastructure and government. My question to you is, where have we heard this before in terms of people trying to attack the U.S. and the U.S. is the good boy? They do nothing. What is your take on that issue and your general take on this article? Well, I, I think the article told us a lot, you know, especially when uh, they discussed the, the the portion of I, where in the 1950s the CIA launched a covert operation called uh, Project uh, Mockingbird in which it, uh, it surve- its surveillance influenced and, and manipulated the American journalists at that time and media coverage explicitly in order to direct public opinion against the Soviet Union, China, and uh, the growing international communist movement. Now, I found that very interesting. But what was really interesting is that uh, in terms of the cyber attacks, I think that one backfired. Because when Trump said we were uh, 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 pushing up our cyber attacks against the Soviet Union, we haven't heard one complaint about complain about any cyber attacks against Soviet the Soviet Union. But because of these capitalists undereducating and undertraining U.S. citizens and the working class, we've suffered several cyber attacks from Russia. Russian individuals over the last few years. Howard University most recently comes to mind. 
but we saw it with the pipeline. We saw it with so many things, Brother Africa. So uh, it's unfortunate that the media is in bed with the CIA. And what what I found shocking about the article was there even even though they said it's a small percentage, a small percentage of of the journalists in major media, uh, whether TV or or, or written journalists or, or writers or whomever, uh, are actual employees of the CIA. Now uh, that's shocking, and and we need truth in journalism, and we see so much mediocrity in journalism today. So I see that as maybe having been a CIA leak to make boast up the power of the U.S. and make us appear much more competent in terms of IT than we we really were or we really are. Because if we were so competent, couldn't we have Brother Africa uh, stopped these cyber attacks that occurred here? Would we have to result? in paying paying these attackers off? Did we pay them off? You know, that was never answered. You know, they were asking for so much money for the pipeline. They were asking. It was affecting air travel. So much was happening with the cyber attacks against the United States. And we did not have uh, people in this country that were skilled enough to crack uh uh, the codes uh, that these persons use to uh, do business as usual. So uh, we failed ourselves with the, with that one. If it were created by the Trump administration and the CIA, it backfired because we're certainly not in a position to have to uh, have any person here skilled enough. To uh, uh, to have ever, uh, as far as the Russians tell us, or China, anyone else, uh, attacked. We've never been able to have any cyber attacks against any of these nations. But we right now are sitting duck. So I I don't know what to say other than we need to. Uh, allow journalists to work independently, uh, independent of government and the CIA. For us as a democracy, we allege that uh, government and uh, journalism are separate. The state does not interfere in the work of the media and journalists. But we, this article demonstrates that's not true. And when you see the Rupert Murdochs of the world and how so many stations are owned by just a few people, that already limits uh, uh, independence in in terms of journalism because you do what your employer wants. You support the view that your employer supports. So with those two factors, we see increasingly uh, uh, a decline in the quality of reporting in the media, uh, in all media, uh, written media, the Internet, as well as television. 
that we see a decline in factual journalism. And what was also interesting in the article is when the uh, Raskin said that uh, he had wanted to publish an article before 9-11 concerning uh, bin Laden. And and he was told to squash it, to bury it, by Condoleezza Rice during the Bush administration. And he has regrets over doing that. It could have saved so many lives if he had just published the article. It would have saved so many lives, Brother Africa, because what I get from this is that us going to war in Iraq, going to war in Afghanistan, you know, looking for weapons of mass destruction, uh, having Iraq having a relationship with Al-Qaeda and, and was a base for Al-Qaeda, all of these things turned out not to be true. How were we so confused? This article lets me leads me to believe that perhaps it was because of, uh, I don't know if the word is correct. Is it called yellow journalism? Thank you, you, Sister Eleanor. Brother Moses. Brother Moses, when we talk about this relationship between newspaper and the State Department and U.S. government, what do you think about what do you think about when you look at that particular relationship and how it undermined the so-called concept of a democracy? What is your take on that, Brother Moses? The courageous people who who, who leak things to WikiLeaks and and uh, like uh, Bradley Bannon, aka Chelsea Bannon, who leaked uh, to the the WikiLeaks whistleblower. Uh, he was a prisoner of conscience when he was in jail, and uh, it takes that kind of courage and politics to keep politics in command and not lose sight of, of a goal, an objective uh, for truth and uh, justice. And, uh, you know, right now Julian Assange is being persecuted because cause he was head of WikiLeaks, and the U.S. is, is chopping at the mouth and, and foaming at the mouth wanting to get their hands on him. Um, the press the press is only as free as, as they are people who are have have freedom minded and ideologically free enough to and identify with the toiling masses and look out for their interests. And the the tools as long as we have those kind of people, we we will always have some some semblance of a free press because they will defy the authorities and willing to go to jail and do whatever is necessary. And we need those kind of courageous people. The New York Times and, you know, kowtow into the interests of the of the government and uh, basically being agents of the government and using CIA implants in their news, et cetera. I mean, we know that corporate media is reliable, and we've known that uh, it was uh, – Actually, in the, in John, the, President Lyndon Baines Johnson recognized that the corporate media was being uh, ultimately uh, more corrupt than ever, and uh, that's when the Corporation for Public Broadcasting was formed, 
in order to put some more objectivity, a little more uh, public interest into the news. And uh, I think it has been somewhat successful. I don't think it's the, the ultimate answer. I think independent news is necessary. We need PFWs and the BIA and uh, all the all the independent Pacifica stations. We need news, uh, freedom of the press, the Washington Informer, uh, the Afro America. We need we need a we need press. Uh, besides the big corporations, uh, because we can't depend on the big corporations, they they don't bite their hand to feed them. They're they're trying to maintain their job, not not give us the news. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, brother Moses. Coming back to brother Haki, brother Haki. When we read articles like this, where we can see that's a collaboration between your newspaper industry and uh, U.S. intelligence, government, etc. And we also see there's a relationship between Hollywood and the Pentagon. It often leads you down the road of most things you hear and see. It's hard to really believe it because they have always stated that, you know, many of these stories and pictures and images are all part of their propaganda machine to create a scenario of what they want you to believe. So how can we protect ourselves from this reality or illusion, Brother Haki? Talk a little bit about that. How do we deal with this uh, conceptual reality, but in reality, it's an illusion? Well, thanks, Brother Africa. Uh, I think first and foremost, we have to initially educate our children. Uh, we got to stop buying, buying into these... Um, these uh, scenarios that says that uh, America is in fact a democracy, that the information that we receive is fair and, and, and balanced. We got to reject those kind of those kind of insinuations. Because the bottom line is that when you talk about you know the control of information, essentially what you're saying is that you can't have a democracy. In other words, for democracies to exist, you must have information. By denying information to people, essentially what the government is saying to the mass of the people is that you are the enemy. The only reason that's a necessity in terms of brainwashing or dumbing down the population is because you want them to be uh, subjected to some kind of abuse. So in the economic realm, when you talk about a situation where, where you know, uh, disproportionately uh, the ec- economics uh, benefit a small section of the people, about 10% of the population at the expense of 90% of the population, under such scenarios, it's important that you have people believe that this kind of uh, inequality is not something that's systematic or systemic, but in fact, the result of some people simply being more intelligent and more creative, more productive than other human beings. In that context, people now become the realization that there's a system in place that decides winners and losers. And so we have to understand, you know, in order to understand that, then we have to read. And, and as the brother alluded to, when things we have to read, we have to read more than one source. We can't be content to read one thing. Definitely, most definitely have to start reading things around the world, not just in America. Because if you read articles on America, clearly the kind of information you get is going to be slandered. And it's not going to be slandered toward the truth. Uh, so I think that the question you asked your question, brother, after I think that the only way we can begin to even confront uh, this barrage of uh, disinformation, these lies, this propaganda that's constantly, constantly in fade, we got to first and foremost understand that it exists. For a lot of people, it's very difficult to imagine a government engaging in the surreptitious, surreptitious, surreptitious kinds of affairs. Uh, they tend to believe that the government could never do such a thing. 
that in fact that those individuals who are part of the journalist profession are honest, ethical, and fair people. Of course, when you look at these these new programs, when you talk about Fox News, MSNBC, and the rest of them, and you look at the content and you ask yourself, why repeatedly do these same organizations continue to bring these representatives who are who are so close to power, you know, as spokespeople on these programs, knowing that the information that you receive is going to be slanted, it's not going to be geared toward the truth. Because number one, the people who they bring on these programs have a vested interest in keeping you dumb because they're making tons and tons of money. And so when we talk about investment in war, we understand that very, very relatively few people in, uh, make money in terms of war. But they also understand that by keeping people ignorant, they can make war, and people never even understand that this large expenditures when it comes to war is, is effectively bankrupting the economy. And, if, you know, so we have to understand that. And so when I talk about the fact that, you know, as the economy declines, one thing I keep telling people over and over again, and a lot of people think I'm, I'm, I'm not serious, when I tell them the repercussions of bankrupt economy means people in society who, for whatever reason, because the economic is ill-suited to, 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 to assist them, you have a situation where these people's existence become esoteric. The government must create a way to get rid of these people that it doesn't need one way or another. It has to be creative in terms of how it does that. Ultimately, the number of people who are suffering uh, great harm, uh, great uh, economic dislocation in society, those numbers are growing leaps and bounds. And the government has no other recourse but to intern large numbers of people. It has no choice. Right now, they can use the police to, to, to brutalize and to kill people, to keep people in place. But it's only a temporary measure. Ultimately, it's going to take some, a, much greater, a much greater amount of force, a much, much more uh, savage kind of strategy in terms of maintaining control in society. People in positions of power understand that. And because they understand that they understand the necessity in terms of propaganda, because if we keep people dumb, it makes their job much easier. You can manipulate people much easier if they don't know what's going on. So if you sit around and you tell people, say, okay, you, you and you, come with me, a lot of people actually come with them, won't even ask the question why. Uh, because they're being subject to, uh, subjected to you know, this propaganda, which they're saying that for any time a person in position of power uh, calls upon you, you know, there's nothing nefarious about it, that they're doing it because they have your interests at heart. Not understanding that the system is diametrically opposed to the interests of most people in society. And because it's diametrically opposed to the interests of most, most people in society, the masses of people are superfluous. They're unimportant. They're, uh, they're, uh, they're, they're the equivalent of of an ant, you know, with no more value than someone stepping on an ant and not giving them a second thought. So clearly, Brother Africa, uh, when we talk about this role of propaganda in terms of relationship between these news organizations and intelligence, then we got to understand that implicit in that is we're at war, and that is what they're saying to the masses of people. We simply have to understand that we must educate ourselves to understand the reality, even though the reality is painful. The bottom line is that there's no skirting or getting around this reality because whether we want to or not, history, history, you know, is ongoing, and no individual can stop it. History is going to do what history does, and no individual can stop it. You can either be informed in terms of understanding what's going on and resist intelligently in, in whatever, whatever manifest, manifestation that manifests itself in, or you can be uninformed and still pay the price. So clearly, you know, that is reality, so we have to understand the nature of propaganda society and understand that it's here to stay and it's not going anywhere. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, I'd like to get your response to this scenario of when we look at these relationships between the press, 
the intelligence agency, the U.S. government, the media. When you look at all these things, one of the things we have in common is, one of the things they all have in common is they are controlled by a few wealthy people, which means they get to create dissent and consent by presenting information and images to make you think something is happening. In reality, it may not be. So looking at this concentration of wealth with people controlling the major media when it comes to a newspaper, when it comes to um, entertainment, and when it comes to those who really control the political power, i.e. Wall Street, etc. The politicians really act on behalf of those with the money. What do you say to people in terms of um, how we're going to change this, this phenomenon of, um, of, of, of not being deceived, as Brother Hackey spoke to earlier? How do we change the phenomenon? Recognizing they're owned by a few people with massive, massive wealth. This is what we, we fight against. Your response, Brother Anthony? We have to fight against that by, uh, one, by organizing ourselves into independent political organizations. That's critical. Another step is that we have to educate ourselves on, uh, on, on our reality. We cannot count on the ruling class to give us the tools necessary for our liberation. They're not going to. Uh, And they're only going to give us enough information for us to continue to serve their interests. And uh, and to a certain extent, because of that, they have to allow us access to to a certain amount of technology because we have to be proficient in that in order to work for them and serve their interests. But to, go, but to go beyond that, we have to develop the skills to do our own research, to do our own study, and to develop uh, sources of information that can analyze uh, what's going on in the world in our interests. And uh, so uh, we need independent political organizations that are guided by a revolutionary ideology that that, that, that serves our interests. And that way we'll have the tools necessary to analyze information for ourselves and our own interests. That's critical. But it, but we have to start with form uh, with every African belonging to a political organization that is working for our people's liberation, and from there, once we're organized, we have to develop the tools to educate our youth, especially because they're going to bear the brunt. Of uh, 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 of the, the decisions that are made in the future, so uh, we have to get 
better organized than we are. And uh, we have to form our own uh, our own political organizations, and we have to develop the tools of analysis needed to handle at, to analyze information uh, from our own interests, not the interests of the ruling class. Okay, panelists, uh, listening audience, this is Africa on the Moon. What we're going to do right now, we have this audio clip we would like to play for you that complements this particular discussion. You can go to YouTube and check out the CIA and false news in 1980. We're going to play a few minutes of this clip, and when we come back, panelists, I'd like to have each one of y'all respond to it. This is the CIA and false news in the 1980s. We all know that you can't believe everything you read, but at the same time, most journalists do try their level best to get the facts straight. It requires checking, and wherever possible, a first-hand account of what's happening. But an eyewitness account is not always possible, particularly in nasty wars on the other side of the world. And so reporters sometimes have to rely on other people's accounts. The story then becomes as good as its source, and sources sometimes lie. The U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, deals in information and misinformation. Tonight we see how the CIA has been able to plant news reports that aren't just inaccurate, but totally fabricated. This is Angola, a former Portuguese colony in southwest Africa that's been at war since the mid-70s. Its left-wing government, supported by Cuban soldiers, fights a continual battle against guerrillas backed by South Africa. Ten years ago, the Soviets helped send guns and troops here, and the United States responded with support for the guerrillas. According to newspapers at the time, that's how the Angolan War started. But did it? John Stockwell, wearing the cross, worked for the CIA for 12 years. As a colonel, his last assignment was to run the U.S. campaign in Angola. The basic theme was to make it look like a, a Russian-Cuban aggression in Angola. And so any kind of story that you could write and get into the media anywhere that, that pushed that line, you did. Uh, One-third of my staff in this task force was covert action, was propagandists, whose professional career jobs was making up stories and finding ways to get them into the press. In 1975, the resource-rich African country was being fought over by three factions. Agostino Neto led the left-wing MPLA, which eventually became the government. Jonas Savimbi, an anti-Marxist, led UNITA, which was openly supported by South Africa. And another anti-communist force was led by Holden Roberto, who had been paid by the CIA for 14 years and was now to receive major U.S. support. The CIA had just closed down three long-term paramilitary operations in Southeast Asia, the Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. They had over a thousand paramilitary case officers come flocking back to Washington. They didn't have desks for everybody, much less jobs, and morale was rock bottom low. They wanted a covert action. They wanted a paramilitary encounter. The rationale uh, was that uh, 
the Soviet Union was trying to take advantage of the United States' weakness right after the, the Vietnam War, that Angola was getting its independence and they were trying to snap it up, and that Henry Kissinger decided that we could not be weak and we wouldn't let them do it. Our own files disproved that. We moved into Angola first and the Russians were responding to us. But before the CIA could move, the U.S. National Security Council had to be sold, and Stockwell helped with the briefing. The first briefings on Angola literally went, gentlemen, this is a map of Africa. Here is Angola. And then they went on with a chart to explain there are three liberation movements in Angola. One of them is headed by Holden Roberto. He's the good guy. We've worked with him for years, and they use literally good guy. Then the, the MPLA is headed by this drunken, psychotic Marxist poet, Augustino Neto. He's the bad guy. And they used exactly the good, so to make sure that people understood. <laughs> Once the National Security Council had given its blessing, Stockwell and the CIA cranked up their propaganda machine. And newspapers around the world became unwitting accomplices in the campaign. From the CIA's headquarters, Stockwell sent his propagandists to Britain, Portugal, Zambia, and Zaire. Far from the battlefield in Angola, they wrote news releases for the two Western-backed factions, and these were fed into the ticker tapes of the Western media. Stockwell's CIA men also wined and dined Western journalists and gave them personal briefings. His man in Zambia was particularly enthusiastic. He ran a story that the city of Malangi had been captured by the UNITA forces and in doing so, it captured 20 Russian advisors. And uh, they thought this would show that Russians were running the thing in Angola. There weren't Russian advisors. It wasn't a factor, and we knew that. But the story did well. The Toronto Star, like many newspapers, picked it up from Reuters News Agency. It was also carried in the Montreal Gazette and in the Vancouver Sun. I, I remember reporting that very clearly. Fred Berglund was the Reuters reporter who filed the story from Zambia. But, um, years later, I discovered that um, a little CIA um, misinformation expert had sat in the um, U.S. Embassy in Lusaka and had composed that communique, and it bore absolutely no relationship at all to truth. You've got to remember, at that stage, during a war, um, you're working under incredible pressure. I, I worked for four months without a day off for 16 hours a day. And all that was wanted was a flow of information. I mean, I, I'd done the same in the Middle East War. I, uh, I was based in Damascus. I mean, in the first week of the war in Damascus, I, I wiped out the Israeli Air Force three times over with official statements. Reuters, with its headquarters here on London's Fleet Street, is one of the world's largest news agencies. Its international bureaus provide many newspapers with their only source of news from far parts of the globe. Well, I mean, with hindsight, um, some of the official statements from the side I was reporting, and I stress from the side I was reporting, but also from the side that people in, um, in Luanda with the MPLA were reporting, clearly most of those, rep those statements were completely false. The CIA man in Zambia soon came up with an even better story. He had some Cuban soldiers uh, raping some young Angolan girls. Uh, then there was a battle and he had uh, that Cuban unit cut off and captured. And then he had the Cuban women, the victims, identifying their rapists. 
and then there was a trial and they were convicted and then he had them executed by a firing squad of the women who had supposedly been violated with photographs of, of, of young African women with uh, weapons shooting down these Cubans. Uh, there had never been a rape. There had never been the military action. The Cubans had never been captured. Uh, it was all fiction. Fiction, maybe. But it showed up on the front page of papers like the Toronto Star. The Toronto Globe and Mail also ran the story, and its headline attributed it to Angolan guerrillas. Many other Canadian newspapers in cities like Winnipeg, Montreal, and Halifax picked up the story. Basically, and to put it very crudely, you can um, publish any old crap you like, and it will get, um, get a newspaper room. But despite the best efforts of the CIA, the armies it supported didn't stand much of a chance once Cuban soldiers showed up. The force led by the man who'd been on the CIA payroll, Holden Roberto, was wiped out. And UNITA and the South Africans made a hasty retreat. Back in Washington, Congress didn't want another Vietnam and voted against spending any more money in Angola. More recently, the CIA has found work for its skilled writers in Central America, particularly in the campaign against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. First, the arms flow story. According to President Reagan, Nicaragua supplied guns to left-wing guerrillas in neighboring El Salvador. The Sandinista dictatorship of Nicaragua, with full Cuban-Soviet bloc support, not only persecutes its people, the church, and denies a free press, but arms and provides bases for communist terrorists attacking neighboring states. David McMichael was the CIA's senior analyst on Nicaragua. He was asked to write a report on the arms flow, but when he looked at the evidence, it didn't support Reagan's claims. The, the argument that we're dealing with here is, do these arms come through or from Nicaragua with the complicity of the Nicaraguan government, and the evidence does not sustain that. In 1981, the CIA asked McMichael for a report on the Nicaraguan press, opposition, and church. And uh, my, my conclusion was that, uh, you know, there was a significant space for these, uh, for these groups to operate, uh, but that they were in no, in no danger of suppression or disappearance. Compared to any other Central American country, Nicaragua has by far the liveliest uh, opposition press and media. Over two-thirds, for example, of the 40-odd radio stations in the country are, are still privately owned and generally speak their mind. When McMichael spoke his mind, the CIA didn't like it. He was fired. But after four years of fighting, now the Nicaraguan government has suspended many freedoms. In the world's newsrooms, the CIA efforts at disinformation continued to turn up. In 1982, reporters were shown photographs of what the CIA said were Soviet bases in Nicaragua, identifiable by their Soviet-styled obstacle courses, training areas, and guns. I used to laugh and say, look at that Soviet-style baseball diamond over there, you know. Um, you know, this is, this is almost foolish, really, you know, to talk about this. First of all, they're not Soviet military bases. That's, that's the whole point. The second is that a barracks is a barracks, you know, an obstacle course is an obstacle course. 
The Soviet freighter Bakuriani pulled into the Nicaraguan port of Corinto today, carrying a mystery cargo which could lead to a showdown between the Sandinista Just over a year ago, on the day President Reagan was re-elected, his administration came up with another Nicaragua story. This one had to do with Soviet MiG fighters, which Washington said had been shipped to Nicaragua in some mysterious crates detected by satellite surveillance. The result was more headlines. But as the story developed, doubts began to emerge. Ronald Reagan had a warning today for Nicaragua and for the Soviet Union. Reagan said the U.S. still cannot confirm reports that Nicaragua has received a shipment of MiG-21 jets. But he said if the reports turn out to be true, the U.S. would take a very dim view. The Nicaraguan government has denied that crates taken off a Soviet freighter today contain any warplanes. And it's accused Reagan of trying to whip up an invasion fever. By week's end, U.S. officials were saying there weren't any MiGs after all. It's the usual thing. The charge makes the headlines. The retraction makes the inside pages. Eight or ten days later, it's revealed, well, MiGs weren't on the way, but that's no longer a headline. So what one is left with is the overall impression from the screaming headlines of the week earlier that Nicaragua continues to represent this enormous danger to the security of the United States. This nation of three million impoverished souls, half of whom are under the age of 15, you know. Well, I would, I, I would say people are very silly if they believe everything that newspapers tell them. And I think pro probably anybody bu who buys a newspaper needs a course on how to read newspapers.
We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. Yes, we are discussing our theme tonight, Feed the War Machine by Any Means Necessary. The interest article that you need to Google, titled New York Times, admit it sends stories to U.S. government for approval before publication. Now, this was done back in June 30, 2019. And just recently, you listened to an audio clip that can be found on YouTube called The CIA and False News in the 1980s. One of the things what we try to do on the radio station is maybe not necessarily give you what you want, but give you what you need. Now, looking at what's going on today, and to my panelists and today, uh, Brother Haki, I start out with you. If hearing that clip on this question of how the CIA um, and create fake news in the 1980s. One of the things they often say that when any man knows that something is successful, they will never give that up. They will continue to use that. Now look at the parallels of what's going on today in the world and the kind of information that the news has seen us. Do you find some kind of parallel between what they did in the 80s and what is going on now? And I'm saying this because, Brother Haki, our people need to have high-level consciousness or, or, or not falling for the okey-doke. Your response, Brother Haki, to this phenomenon? Well, you, you, Brother Africa, you, <laughs> you're absolutely correct. Uh, you know, if something is successful, then by all means, you continue it. And that's precisely what the government does. I mean, why would, that's precisely what CIA and intelligence communities does. I mean, why would you want to change it if it's successful? Uh, one of the things is that, you know, is ironically, you know, people are people. And uh, some people, for whatever reason, are more prone to uh, being manipulated than others. And in such a scenario, then clearly you've got a, people, you've got a situation where many, many people are just primed to accept, uh, you know, uh, uh, information that's erroneous, false, or, or, or not factual. And the, the government, intelligence community, understand that. And that is one of the means they use in terms of spreading the community because you've got people who are, say, for whatever reason, predetermined uh, or pre-programmed uh, to accept falsehoods, then you can pit them against those people who are informed. And so that's how the government uh, achieves its objectives. So clearly, Brother Africa, the, the question that you raised in terms of, you know, how do you overcome this, this, this phenomenon in terms of the propensity of, you know, state to utilize propaganda for the purposes of deception, how do you overcome that? It's a very difficult question to ask, Brother Africa, because the bottom line is that, you know, uh, human beings are unique. And, uh, you know, some of, us, uh, some of us are more primed to accept or to under- come to the realization that something's fundamentally wrong, but other of us are not. So it becomes a very difficult question in terms of how do you navigate a situation where people who are primed to believe, you know, the nonsense populated by, you know, intelligence community. But uh, let me just raise something that's as a side issue. I think this is important. I think one of the things when we talk about the propensity of, you know, propaganda in the society in terms of, you know, the, you know, this long-standing practice of intelligence communities using these disinformational lies to deceive people. One of the things when we talk about the functioning of, of, of news reporters, one of the things we have to understand, this whole concept of objectivity versus accuracy. One of the, one of the ways in which journalists justify in terms of, you know, producing propaganda is the whole question around objectivity. Because all objectivity says from a from a news point from a news uh, uh, gathering operation, all it says is that you report what you told. 
So if I tell you the sky is, is polka dot, you report in the news article the sky is polka dot because that's objective. It's not accurate. So it's typically what happens is when, 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 when reporters try to interject some accuracy, uh, it's, it's, it's shot down as not being objective. So it's one of those kind of situations where uh, journalists are caught up, caught up in this, uh, this, this catch-22 in which, you know, they can't win. And that is perfect for the intelligence community because they can propagate, you know, nonsense uh, because the bottom line is given the ethics of journalism, you've got to report what I tell you. And that is, that is a problem. And, of course, as Brother Robert said, that's why it's a necessity in terms of alternative media because alternative media is free to be more accurate in terms of assessment in terms of, you know, deconstructing situations and make sense of terms of what's, what's, what's more likely going on in the real world, and to, particularly as it relates to geopolitics. Uh, I think that, you know, we also, Brother Africa, when you think about the fact that, you know, three corporations control all of the, all of the news in the world, I'm talking about the Rudders, uh, uh, American Press International, and United Press International, they control all the news throughout the world. So you've got a relatively small number of people controlling all the news content throughout the world. So the, for the intelligence community to tap into those three organizations is not difficult at all. So if the information from these people is, is, is directly, uh, 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 is direct, comes directly from, you know, uh, you know, from intelligence for, sources through these agencies, then it, the news that these agencies distribute throughout the world is going to be not going to be factual. It's going to be lie. It's going to be propaganda. But it's all good in terms of legally, in terms of how things actually work. So to answer your question, Brother Africa, you know, I, I wish there was some easy solution in terms of what can we do in terms of getting people to understand the, the magnitude of this kind of propaganda disinformation and the really negative impact it has, really adverse impact it has on the way people think. If we could, if we could figure out a way to do that, uh, that would be great. Uh, the bottom line is that we do have a situation with intelligence community understanding and by virtue of you know, the, um, the science-based um, social team in the, in the White House, their job specifically is to, to monitor the U.S. population or to determine those, 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 that kind of propaganda which is most effective in terms of reaching the masses of the American people. And given that, and given, given that reality, when you start talking about the, the intersection between you know, sociology, psychology, psychiatry, uh, when you start talking about those, the, the intermingling of those disciplines, then it becomes very, very easy for the intelligence community to innovate ideas or concepts which deceives the masses of people, and the masses of people never even realize they've been deceived. Often I say, you know, one of the things that's very popular is that, you know, it's much easier uh, to trick people than to tell people they're being tricked. And the intelligence community understands that. Uh, so they are very, very instrumental in terms of tricking people on a daily basis, 24 hours a day. And one last thing, Brother after I close with this. I think it's important that we understand just in terms of some, some we need to inject some reality in, in terms of the question that you raised. Because one of the things that we have to understand is that in order for these people to keep their jobs, there's some things that has to happen in terms of these journalists keeping their jobs. Number one, they have to go along. They have to go along with whatever the, whatever the popular ethos is at that moment. Uh, if your organization is geared toward dispensing propaganda, then that's what you go with. You don't bite the, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Secondly, they learn, self, they learn to self-censor. So you realize you work for an organization, and if you tell the truth that you know your ass is out the door, then what you going to do? You're going to lie. You're going to self-censor. So you start making information to appease your higher-ups. And lastly, we, let's talk about budgetary concerns. So one of the things he talked about, the, the clip talked about, he talked about you know, eyewitness accounts being uh, 
uh, being uh, utilized in terms of, you know, propagating news. And that's certainly a consideration. Uh, oftentimes, you know, particularly in an age where they're cutting budgets and news agencies don't have the money in terms of going around the world to actually investigate stuff, so they depend on eyewitness accounts in terms of what's going on around the world. And that's very, very true. In that context, and we got to understand the role of budget concerns. And so, so these organizations, you know, who got these budgetary concerns, you know, get this information from the API, UPI, or others, uh, present this information to the journalist. They say, okay, well, here's what we got. You write up a story about it. What is it, what is that journalist to do but to dispense propaganda? So you, but you're absolutely correct that we have to become more informed, much more intelligent in terms of understanding how these systems work. We have to. And, 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 and there's no fear in terms of understanding how the system works because a lot of lines that I alluded to before, uh, the history the history goes on. No matter what you do, whether you understand or don't understand, it's not going to negate history. And given the history of America and given the aggression America has shown historically, uh, given the kind of willingness it is willingness of, of the American uh, elite you know, to impose ignorance among its population, then clearly because the masses of people are, 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 are unimportant, then clearly uh, this, this question in terms of propaganda is, 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 is something uh, for them is really of no consequence because the people they're feeding the propaganda to are not people worthy of any kind of respect in the first place. And so, therefore, when you lie to them, so what? You know, it's, it's part of the course. So clearly, Brother Africa, what you asked is a very intricate question, and I wish I could answer it more succinctly, but I can't, and I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Anthony, listening to the audio clipping of the CIA and fake news that it creates to give to the press. Now, understanding that I said earlier, when they find out that something is successful, they do it all the time. Brother Anthony, what you take from not only that clipping, but what you take from how you're seeing things that are going on today as they are being presented to us? i.e., for for example, the sole narrative on the so-called violence. Are they really telling the truth of what it is, how it works, and what's really going on? The coups are going on all around the world, Africa and, and, and elsewhere. We know in Africa they have, in the 54 countries, they have a U.S. military component in each country. What is that relationship with the U.S. military? Occupation and coups. There are all kind of scenarios in which they are creating conditions to try to create perception that will be favorable to their interests. Your general dynamic, your general um, take on the audio clipping and the statements I just made, Brother Anthony. Yes, I think some of the uh, some of the lessons from that audio clip are applicable to the present day. And uh and uh one sneaky way that they that that, that capitalists resort to pressing information is they would make a headline of uh uh out of uh you know the observations that uh that Reagan allegedly made uh about uh, 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 uh about weapons being uh uh smuggled through Nicaragua but the refutation of that will appear about a week later in the inside pages of the newspaper 
not on not a headline, but inside pages of newspaper. That technique is, is still utilized today. And uh, in other words, uh, some sometimes uh, the same uh, the same newspaper will refute a story, but they'll re- put the refutation in the inside pages of the paper. And uh, and uh, you know it's interesting that one of the the journalists quoted and equipped that. Uh, that people need to be trained how to you how to read newspapers. I think that's true, and this is coming from a journalist. And uh, I thought that uh, you know that was very interesting, but that uh, but that technique because it's been successful in this past is still utilized today. And uh, and I think uh, and I think. You know your uh, your uh, your observation is correct. That all this reporting about the coronavirus uh, is distracting people from what else is going on in the world, uh, like all the coups that are taking place in Africa, Asia, etc. And uh, and this is a dang- uh, this is a very dangerous situation uh, because uh, you know uh, our homeland is being taken over by the enemy with uh, you know in a, in a devious manner without our knowledge, and that is why it becomes critically important. That we commit, that we uh, that we communicate and share information with Africans in various parts of the world, worldwide. Uh, whether they be in uh, they be in the diaspora or at home, uh, we need to develop mechanisms for sharing information. So that we don't uh, always f- uh, fall for the okie doke that the capitalists put out about our homeland, and uh, it's a very difficult task. But uh, but I think the key is educating our youth. Uh, start from there, starting uh, you know uh, teaching them how to have the 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 analytical skills necessary to read through the propaganda. And uh, this reminds me of an observation that Kwame Ture made uh, uh, years ago, that that, that, that the capitalist media lies all the time. And when they tell the truth, it's a result of a double lie. Now, uh, the analytical skills to sift, to extract the truth in that situation, uh, have to be ha- highly developed. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's not an easy task, but it can only be done through per- the permanent organization of our people. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Going to Brother Moses. Your response to that clipping, Brother Moses.
You still have another sorry, I was on mute. I was on mute there. Um, um, you want me to respond to what now? Yeah. It's your response to the clipping, uh, the CIA and how they play false stories to the press. Um, and yeah. have we seen the story before? Well, we we have you have a government that's based on a few people earning the the wealth of the economy as it grows, and uh, you have a, a superstructure that's built upon uh, maintaining that 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 condition, and so the few are exploiting the many and reaping the benefits of the economy. And the CIA and other parts of the of the superstructure that come up around the government, uh, the institutions and organizations, uh, all maintain the status quo and uh, operate in the interest of the of the status quo, the ruling class that exists. And uh, the CIA will do anything, evidently to look out for the interests. I mean, uh, our brothers and sisters in Africa who were conscious uh, were being assassinated left and right, especially during Martin Luther King and Malcolm X's day who also were assassinated. And uh, all this all this is um, a direct result of the fact that the ruling class is the ruling class and they're, they're looking out for their interests and they have finance capital. They have... They have the ability to pay people to do things and uh, get things done. And uh, the working class, you know, this has organization as his only weapon, and and we have to to recognize that the organizations like the CIA are going to be trying to infiltrate the movement, infiltrate the unions, infiltrate whatever organizations we build, and and uh, stop us from doing the tasks that destiny has set out for us, which is to free, to set the captives free and to, and to uh, replace this capitalism with socialism. And uh, I, I think, you know, as long as the U.S. government exists, the CIA will be doing its job to maintain it and to keep it in power. And, uh, and, uh, that's reality. So we have to be govern ourselves accordingly. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses and Sister Eleanor. They tell me if you won't have freedom of speech and a free press, you better own one. What's your take on the audio and that statement, Sister Eleanor? Well, I, I agree that, uh, thank goodness that, uh, uh, um, Lyndon Bain Johnson. I made some attempts in the 60s by setting up public TV. But the real issue is that when anyone, anybody rises up, assert their nation's economic sovereignty, they appear to be assassinated. And it's, it's the imperialists who uh, – Reminds us that uh, any attempt uh, made will you'll be dealt with harshly. But uh, what we are, we are the subordinate people, and what they want to do is maximize the theft of our resources, labor, and the wealth 
of the nation and of each and every nation. You know, I looked at that uh, mural that Rivera had painted uh, in one of the articles, Brother Africa. I hope I'm not diverting. Diego Rivera, uh, last week we talked about another artist, but this is a great artist, a revolutionary. In this art, in this mural, for example, he painted uh, a picture including Eisenhower, Forrest Dulles, Dulles and these uh, oppressors from the United Fruit, and he portrayed them as what they were, thieves. And as Brother Anthony, Brother Hakeem, and Brother Moses said, we must educate ourselves. And what has happened in this country is that the literacy rate has continued to decline over the last 50 years. So what we need to do is educate our youth, but educate ourselves. We need to emulate Cuban revolution. One thing they did was they set up a literacy program. Everyone from cradle to grave could participate. They could learn to read and write. In order to be a critical thinker, thinker it's essential that you have these basic skills. And uh, we need to emulate that behavior, bring it here to the United States, set up reading workshops in senior citizen facilities, uh, in, 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 in our daycare, in, in our home daycare, set up some kind of criteria for promoting literacy. I hear people who have home care babysitting operations, which are very lucrative, and are licensed and funded by the federal government and the state. Say, well, I don't have time to be a teacher and a babysitter too. Well, if you're uh, if you're a child care provider, you are a teacher. So we have to provide you with the skills and the tools to be an effective teacher while you have those children in your home. But we also need to visit. Uh, senior citizens, and what we've seen uh, with this pandemic is the way that senior citizens have been treated throughout this country. They had the amongst the high, higher, they had a higher death toll than even persons in the U.S. industrial prison complex. Now, how did this happen? It happened because seniors, we're having a cultural and political crisis in this country. It really is a cultural, political, and economic crisis in this country. As, as the country has become increasingly diverse, we've seen since the 1980s our Hispanic population grow enormously. But in the last 20 years, we now have 58 million people, I believe, here that this is their home. We have numerous um, expatriates who have come through the diversity lottery from Africa to join us here and make it their home. So we're going to have to develop the an educational curriculum that allows all Americans, no matter what their nationality, their race, their religion, to learn to read and write 
and decipher and teach them through organizing what is correct. And so many of us embrace the philosophy of the capitalists that, yeah, uh, they should make their money because maybe one day I'll make mine. But there's no way that us, the 99%, can ever become 1%. So we better think about how we organize, how do we take over our national resources, how do we create, how do we support countries in Africa right now that are trying to create national sovereignty? How do we align ourselves with the AU and help them work as a collective to foster national sovereignty? In that article, Brother Africa, they talked about Nicaragua having planes and crates. Now, on the surface, that may sound very logical, but to me it sounded kind of silly. Wouldn't you fly a plane to Nicaragua rather than bring it on a ship in a crate? And how many could you bring in a ship? didn't make sense. But I believe it flew, and I believe people believed it. But, Brother Africa, how do... Are planes shipped in crates? I don't think so. I think they're flown to where they need to go once they're constructed. I don't think they're shipped around. I may be completely wrong. But it just doesn't seem possible. That's that's making assumption if it ever happened. But I got the point, Sister Eleanor. We'd like to thank you. We had this point in time to go. I don't think it ever happened in Nicaragua. I think that, uh, as the other analysts have said, if it's working for you, continue the practice. And I think right now it's out of control because our culture is so diverse that we have other people that have their own interests and their whole own goals far beyond what the traditional U.S. government had in mind in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. America never imagined that it would become host to the largest human migration on earth, but it is. So we need to set some boundaries as as workers, as the working class. And people think when you say the working class, it means uh, only the working poor. Anyone who goes to a job and depends on a salary, as Brother Hakeem says, uh, has to bend to their employer. Moreover, anyone who goes to a job is a member of the working class, no matter how well that job pays, whether they're the CEO or they're the janitor. They are a part of the working class. So we need to help people understand that and uh, organize, educate, and vote. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. So I might say you may be a class of slaves under capitalism. But anyway, those who have just joined us, this Africa on the Moon. I'm Brother Africa. You are listening to a first part of a two-part series as you discuss the thing, feed them war machine by any means necessary. Uh, what we want to do at this point in the time, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, 
We have our political panelists and analysts give us their final thoughts for tonight. And we also want to remind you, you haven't already done it to do so. Time is of essence. Come and join Africa on the Move under the banner of the African Awareness Association. We'll be taking a free ride to Cuba this year from December 27th through January the 3rd. If you're interested in joining us and coming with us, please email the African Awareness Association. All spelled together in lower caps, number two, at gmail.com. So right now, let's take this break, and when we come back, we're going to have our final thoughts from our political panelists and analysts for today's program.
right. Don't be a Buffalo soldier. When we talk about being a Buffalo soldier, it can extend as far back as the beginning of the war machine when it first stopped its foot in Africa with the intent to own, dominate, and control Africa African people. That's right. Don't be no Buffalo soldier. Welcome back to Africa on the Move. Like always, we try to give you what you need, and maybe not what you want. So right now, we're going to close out the first part of a two-part series, Feed the War Machine by Any Means Necessary. And remind you, again, if you want to take that tour with us, go on that feeder ride under the banner of the African Awareness Association. Please email them at African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com. On December 27th, January 3rd, be there, be a square. All right, let's go back to our political analysts and panelists and what we're going to do right now. Start off with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, give us your final thoughts for today's program. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to be on the show tonight. I want to thank you and and uh, the audience for putting up with me. Um, I think that um, we have to unite the many to defeat the lies of the few. And it's only the lies and the misinformation and the misdirection and the false issues bringing up side issues and and distracting people from the real issue of the 99 versus the 1%. And uh, we have to, to, to continuously educate ourselves about what's really going on around us and uh and support people who are progressive and uh be all that we can be in order to to uh to to bring about a new day in this society and um it's a lot easier said than done but we can do it thank you thank you brother moses for your participation on today's program, and we now will move to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts for tonight. Sister Eleanor. Well, Brother Africa, uh, thank you so much for uh, allowing me to participate in the show this evening. Thank you to all the analysts and the audience. And I would say to continue tuning in and tell your friends to do so. And Brother Africa, we really, really have to focus on increasing the literacy rate of adults in America. And from these articles, we saw how the media was manipulating us before computers and social media. Now we have social media and algorithms further uh, misguiding us. So um, when I saw the Diego Rivera Miro where uh, President Eisenhower is pictured in the face of a bomb and you see uh, dead corpses with Castillo Amas and Amas says that if he has to... uh, turn the country into a cemetery in order to pacify it, he would not hesitate to do so. And this was in Guatemala. 
1954, and the whole issue was United Fruit and the uh, Forrest Dulles uh, and his law firm uh, were uh, uh, Sullivan and Cromwell here in Washington, D.C., represented United Fruit, and Dulles and his brother, Alan Dulles, were great investors, and Alan Dulles was the head of the CIA from 1953 to 1961, and they were large stakeholders in, in, in United Fruit. And then when we see that the head of United Fruit uh, is the former CIA director, uh, Walter uh, Bed. Uh, what's his name? Bedell Smith. What what's what's going on here is very true. That the interests of the rich are not in the line with the interests of the working class anywhere. We need to build our unions up in this country. Our unions are weaker than they've ever been. We need to encourage all workers uh, to organize, become part of a union. We need to increase literacy from the cradle to the grave. We need to emulate the Cuban Revolution. And I, as Brother Anthony says to us so frequently, we need to organize and be part of organizations and continue to do our research and educate others and let others educate us to defeat the 1% so that we can reclaim our labor, the resources of our nation, and the wealth that belongs to the people. National sovereignty should be more important than the sovereignty of a few individuals. And Donald Trump giving the rich a greater tax cut is running this country into the poorhouse and working the poor to death. And we need to change the policy where you get a job and you stand on your feet packing groceries eight hours a day and you depend on state insurance and state assistance to purchase food and state assistance to live somewhere. This is not the way anything should work. A worker should earn a livable wage where they can provide for themselves and their family with dignity and independence. So we have to continue the struggle. I hope to be able to join you next week, and I thank you so much. And everyone have a productive and healthy week, wear your mask, wash your hands. And the one thing, Brother Africa, this pandemic is not something that was manufactured uh, here in the United States to confuse us. It's affecting human beings everywhere on the planet, and more than 4 million people have died. Cuba is sharing its vaccine. I would urge us to share our vaccines with people of Africa who desperately 
want them and need them so that they can save lives. Right now, it's only the mainly the elderly, the poor, the working class, black and brown and red people dying in this country and around the world. But we found out that the virus is bigger than that when Bolsonaro became ill or right now even vaccinated uh, the Supreme Court Justice uh, Kavanaugh or what? what is his name, Brother Africa, the, the, the guy that uh, is the alleged rapist that became a Supreme Court Justice. Anyway, he came down the with Jesse the virus. Kavanaugh. He said yep. right. He, he's come down with the virus. So we need to pay attention to what's going to happen in the Supreme Court. It's going to be productive women's reproductive rights next week. And uh, we got to pay attention because this court, hopefully, they will rise above their personal prejudice and let the law rule so that Roe v. Wade will not fall. Thank you, Brother Africa. Good Thank night, you, everyone. Thank you, Sister Eleanor, for your contribution to today's program. I do, I would like to note that um, clearly, me and you may differ, differ on our perspective, understanding of the possibility and realities of where the virus might have originated, who originated but that's your story. You sticking to it, and I have mine. We thank you. Brother Haki, give us your final thoughts for the night. Yeah, well, you know, you know, Brother Africa, often we talk about uh, capitalism is in crisis. And often when we say capitalism is in crisis, I don't think people understand the, the potential impact it's going to have on their lives. Internationally, you know, when you look at the global debt-to-GDP ratio, which is currently stands like 322, 322%, essentially what we're saying that given this reality, uh, you know, uh, the, the global economy, and specifically we're talking about the Western economies, are indebted to the tune of $257 trillion. Now, in this deficit is a direct result not of, uh, uh, of, of production. Well, of course, production is down. But the reason why production is down is because there's much more equitable, much more money to be made by simply investment. And so what happens is that you have this paradigm that exists in the West in which in order to make money, it's all about investment. So, so typically when you talk about you know, in creating wealth, you talk about creating something in which you sell, you produce. Uh, well, that uh, paradigm is no longer at play in the Western world, and so as a consequence of capitalism's own strategies, uh, essentially what it's doing is bankrupting the world. And so keep in mind, so if we talk about the bankrupting of the world, and essentially even if you had production in America, the bottom line is that you have no one to sell it to because simply because capitalism is bankrupting the world. And we've got to understand that it doesn't have, has a very unique implications for the masses of, of people, you know, here in America. Secondly, when we talk about, you know, uh, you know debt, and we talk about global debt, we talk about debt on a global, on a global basis, now, we're talking about $47 trillion. Um, now, keep in mind that when you talk about $47 trillion, you're talking about billions of people who on average are making maybe 3 to $5 a day. So this notion in terms of this, 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 this question around household debt, $47 trillion is a tremendous amount of money. And this debt that exists around, around the world in terms of household debt globally 
decreased from 2008 from 12 trillion to currently 47 trillion dollars. So essentially, what you're saying to the households, with the ability to 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 finance education for your children, the ability for health care, the ability of those things that people need are in jeopardy. And the thing we have to understand is that in America, we're not immune from those statistics. And so, so when we talk about in the context of America, then we talk about in America, individual debt in America per capita is something like eighty thousand uh, dollars, eight hundred eighty-five dollars a year. That's an average, but. If we, but if based upon the consumer price index, if we incorporate housing costs, then that in, that per capita debt that Americans hold wouldn't be eighty thousand eight hundred eighty-five dollars. It'd be more on the order of two hundred and forty-five thousand dollars. People are indebted. So in America, people are working from you know from, from paycheck to paycheck and hoping that they don't lose their job because they realize that they lose their job, you know what the consequences going to be. And here's the kicker: given the way the the, the capitalist Capitalism is undermining you know, economic development. It's inevitable that increasingly number of people are going to lose their jobs, and there's, there's no way around that. And so, when you talk about in America with an average salary of forty thousand dollars a year, and you talk about the indebtedness of, of of the American people, then we got to understand that as far as the capital is concerned, if you can't contribute to the economy, then what use are you? So we have to understand the implicit threat of capitalism poses to the lives of people in society. I wish. And it's all being very idealistic. Of course, I wish that people, irrespective of, of their skin color, irrespective of their class standing, I wish that they would say, listen, we have a better interest in working together to fight this because inevitably what's going to happen is not only they're going to pit us against one another, but we end up killing each other, each other, each other only to make the situ- situation considerably worse. I wish that people would understand the urgency of the situation, but the bottom line is that the history is very, very clear on that point. It doesn't flow that way. It doesn't flow as smoothly as I would like it. And uh, so understanding that, uh, understanding that uh, this decline in terms of this crisis that capitalism is confronted with isn't going anywhere. It's important that we as a people understand that reality. Uh, you know, um, as far as, as, as Africa is concerned, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I advocate all the time, I just wish that the 54 African leaders would embrace the reality in terms of economically what's going on in the world, specifically what's going on in terms of economic policy as it relates to Africa. The systematic um, impoverization of Africa is something that's been going on for a long, long time, and it's time that African leaders you know, you know, take, take hold of what's going on and fight to create a different paradigm. As long as African leaders continue to play ball in terms of you know, Western investments or, or or, 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 or Western fake concerns about the, 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 the concerns of Africa, as long as African leaders continue to believe in such, uh, such propagandi- propagandistic nonsense, then the more Africa will continue to suffer. And it's that simple. And so we got work to be done. But in the context of America, I think it's important that people understand that, you know, there's rules of picture that many of us have in terms of, you know, things getting better, the bottom line is they're not going to get better. I know I know you don't want to hear that. I know you you know, you gotta have hope. I understand that. And I'm not saying I'm not telling you, you know, that when you interact with your children to give them the raw reality. I'm not saying that. Of course you gotta temper that reality with, you know, with, with the expectations of that that you have with that child. And so therefore certain information you sit at this at an early age you sit simply on the presented children. You want them to believe that everything is fine and they, they can grow up and achieve all the things they want to achieve in life. We want them to believe that. But the same token, that as they get older, around the teen years, 
we have to interject some reality in terms of what's going on in society because the bottom line, just this, this deconstruction of the economy is going to adversely, on a major level, impact, negatively impact on the lives of these, of these young people who ultimately is their responsibility uh, when it's all said and done in terms of confronting this insanity. Uh, for the elders, for those of us, you know, who are, you know, 50 and over, you know, uh, we're, we're close to transitioning. And so the bottom line is that, you know, that we won't necessarily be around for this fight when things really unravel. So it's incumbent upon the young people to understand what the issues are and what's, what's so important because the bottom line is they don't have any recourse. But having said that, Brother Africa, as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix. Uh, that is key. If we're going to defeat propaganda, then we must unravel the matrix. We must begin to understand that everything that we hear and see isn't, uh, isn't, isn't bona fide, isn't, isn't justified, or it's not uh, rational. So having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night, and we'll uh, see you next week. Good night, Brother Haki, and thank you as well for your contributions to today's program. And we'll bring in Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is that we 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 must get better organized as a people. That is the only solution that's going to uh, enable us to achieve Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. This objective is the only one that will solve the, the, all the problems that are facing the masses of Africans worldwide. And you can find out more about uh, uh, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, and Objective Pan-Africanism by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And there you can find out about the history of our organization and our efforts to achieve Pan-Africanism, total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. And uh, in, 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 our, in the course of our struggle, we must join an organization that is working for people's liberation and we must learn to read and share the information we have with each other. Thank you for having me tonight, Brother Africa. And uh, revolutionary greetings to you and our and the fellow panelists and the listening audience. And we'd like to thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution as well to today's program, all our political panel analysts, all our listeners, all our supporters. And we'd like to remind you, if you would like to have a copy of this program and others, please email us at africaonthemove2 at gmail.com. If you have something to say, we'd like to be a guest. We, are, we, will, we will open up a platform where you can come and make your contribution as well. Email us, inform us, and we'd love to have you. Because remember, without information, you cannot think, and without organization, you cannot think clearly. We don't encourage you to understand that's the secret to and the solution to African people suffering all over the world is Pan-Africanism. 
which is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. We follow that particular uh, philosophy, working for the objective, and want you to come on board with us. So until next time, let's always strive to go forward, Apple, backwards, downwards. This is part one of a two-part series, Feed the War Machine by Any Means Necessary. We'll see you next week at 7 p.m. Spread the word. This has been Africa on the Moon.
l'amour, la volonté et le sacrifice pour le changement du Congo. Congolais pour un Congo nouveau, Madame Patricia Lokwa, Seven, Banaya Congo, Tolindana, Tolindana.
El amaranta y el pinky, ¿dónde están? No, la cantera. Stand tall. 